0: Hi, gang. Morgan and Isabel here to share. We are looking for a new member for the Wo team to help us edit and cut episodes.
1: If somebody you know or you yourself has experience with editing podcasts or even music and is interested in adding us to your portfolio, please reach out. Email womansmail at gmail.com with the subject line editor. Pretty basic understanding of sound editing software is a good starting point.
0: Yeah, we want this to be mutually beneficial, meaning we'll be able to offer some compensation for your time and are open to supporting any creative goals you have and see how we can work together.
1: Again, email Womance, that's W-H-O-A-M-A-N-C-E, mail at gmail.com with the subject line editor.
0: Mail as in mail a letter, not mail as in mister. (laughs)
1: Looking forward to hearing from you.
0: It's a bonus. Well Um, Okay, hey, welcome to another WONUS with WOMANCE. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. Today, we are going to do our second true crime WONUS. So our first one was about Jude Devereaux and uh, her psychic. This one is kind of similar. Like, this is not about murder. This is not um, about... This crime is actually... Not even necessarily a crime. It's mostly about a court case that is really interesting. And then I kind of fell down a rabbit hole with it, as I am often want to do. This is a story about freedom of speech, privacy, what it is to be a celebrity, and then it's also, of course, about romance novels, and it's about who we are in the sense of the stories we tell other people and ourselves about who we are, the stories that get told about us by others, and then like the official record, laws, and also this new idea that didn't really exist when this trial took place called data (laughs) about us. Okay, so here's the headline. In 1992, 1993, Danielle Steele, her then husband, and the adoptive father of her second child, filed a lawsuit to keep what is essentially a sealed adoption record still sealed from two reporters for People magazine who were writing an unauthorized autobiography about Danielle Steele. And they lost that lawsuit to keep that information. Private because Danielle Steele is a celebrity essentially um and so just to give you a heads up because it is true crime, and I know that that's kind of sticky for some people, I want to assure you that we're not going to go into any gory details. I will give you a trigger warning heads up that. This case does um, touch upon suicide, drug use, and sexual assault, but I promise I'm not going to go into any detail about that except to say that it did happen in relation to this. And you might be wondering, (laughs) what does an adoption record have to do with all of those things? Well, we'll get to it. So first of all, central character, Danielle Steele. Isabeau, what do you know about Danielle Steele?
1: That she's a very famous romance writer.
0: All right, when you say very famous. Yes. Tell me more about that. What 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 makes her very famous?
1: She's written like, I don't know, 400 books um, over the course of 40 years. She cornered the market in terms of paperbacks at the grocery store in the 80s, 90s and aughts. She's still in mass publication.
0: What do you know about Danielle or what do you think you know about Danielle Steele as a person?
1: She's the one who has that apartment in paris right
0: she has a house yeah
1: yeah and she also said that she only sleeps like two to four hours a night and she writes like 20 hours a day she still only writes her books on typewriters and she only eats only survives on like chocolate and coffee like she's an incredibly thin woman and owns a lot of shoes
0: I haven't heard the coffee and chocolate thing. but She she has quite a few homes, and she has two very famous homes, one in Paris where she has a desk that is a sculpture of a stack of her books. She exclusively writes on a 1946 Olympia typewriter. She owns quite a few, um, but that's what she's always written her novels on. She doesn't just have a huge shoe collection. She has a huge couture collection. So she's very, very wealthy. What kind of is the crux of this case and a lot of this, like the hinge and also the selling point of this unauthorized autobiography is that Danielle Steele is writing romance novels based on her own life. And like life is like a shared thing, shared experiences. And if you make your life public and are the only one profiting off of your shared experiences, what right do you have to gatekeep that information? from other people potentially profiting off of it.
1: I have some questions. All
0: right. Because we read a Daniel Steele for
1: Ice Wine season, which was mm-hmm. a great season. And she wrote about the Titanic. So when you say that she's writing about herself, can you be a little more specific? Like the woman has written a thousand, like not thousands of books, but like hundreds.
0: She's written 186 books total, 141 of them are romance novels, mm. had about three made-for-TV movies, not including many series. When those were released, they rivaled ratings for Monday Night Football and the first game of the World Series. That's awesome.
1: I love that statistic.
0: I have on good authority that one of her five book deals with Delacorte was worth $60 million. Holy shit. And uh, her books sell on average a million copies in hardcover and two and a half to three and a half million in paperback. It's insane to me that like romance
1: is still and very recently still coming out in hardback (laughs) other than for like the library market, like whose books are those?
0: And so she has a lot of books. Not all of them are explicitly or obviously based on her personal life. But just like a personal anecdote, when I was trying to Google specific aspects of this case, like I would get, you know... Some Like the first four results would be like probably like something gossipy from the San Francisco gate which covers her because she's such a a figure in the San Francisco social scene and lives in a giant mansion surrounded by two other giant mansions (laughs) and I would get like a Wikipedia article and I would get like some kind of record from the California state but then like the Fifth result would be a specific book title by her, and it would, in the summary, have details that related to what I was searching for. A couple of her former husbands (laughs) point out specific texts, very influential texts, that are eerily similar to their actual relationships with Danielle Steele, which we'll get into shortly. Yeah, she's published a lot and she's made a lot of money publishing. She's actually the best-selling of all-time author who's still living and she's number four overall. She's sold, I think it's like for like up to 800 million copies. Right above her, Barbara Cartland, who's sold close to a billion copies in the overall count, not just living. I was just about to mention Barbara Cartland. I can't believe that you
1: preempted me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because one of the things that I love about these bonuses and like sidebar, you know, this idea that like romance authors, they're just like us. What's great about these old ones is that they're insane. And I wasn't feeling well last night. So I decided out of no reason other than not feeling well to watch the Diana musical on Netflix. Oh, no. And Barbara Cartland has an entire song and then comes back for a reprise of a song in a musical about Lady Di.
0: And I was like, Yeah, she's Diana's like stepmother's stepmother, step grandmother.
1: And it was like an insane thing where I'm like, God, romance novelists are not just like us.
0: (laughs) Barbara Cartland's an important person to point out because. And now we're going. I want to get a little bit into Danielle Steele's public biography and say she is not so unlike Barbara Cartland and the fact that she actually is very blue blooded. I'm going to send you a link in our little chat. This is a, a collection of photos from Danielle Steele's official biography or official website, I should say. And I just want you to look at these and kind of describe what Danielle Steele looks like for people who don't know. Okay, and we'll put these
1: in the show notes when we we can definitely link in the show notes. Oh, she's got the crazy ponytail hair.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: I mean that it's super long. It looks like if you're going to ride an old-timey bike, it might get caught in the spoke. Like, the ponytail itself goes, like, halfway down her back. Yes, She wears a lot of couture. She actually, like, no shade on the great departed Joanna Lindsay, but they have similar hairstyles.
0: (laughs) I like that you think that would be an insult
1: to Joanna Lindsay. I just want to make sure everybody feels okay about this. Oh, man. Daniel Steele has an amazing puff pink coat. Whatever front stoop this is has two lions with shields and crests. She wears a lot of jade. She wears a lot of jewelry. Also, every scene in an interior kind of looks like, I don't know, a knockoff Versailles. Like, what is this wallpaper and
0: wainscoting? (laughs) She actually, her home was built by the Spreckles Sugar Heiress. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Are these
1: her children? No, they're not enough of them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We're missing two. Those are her children. They're very beautiful children.
0: Danielle Steele is a mother of nine. Two are her step sons. um, And one of her sons uh, did die. He committed suicide when he was 19. He is the child who was adopted. That's part of why all of her daughters, I believe, work in fashion. I just read an essay she wrote for In Style about her experience of the pandemic. God, she... Whoever does the work on her face
1: is doing an excellent job because this is a woman who has aged imperceptibly.
0: Yes. She was born, I think, in like 46.
1: Holy shit.
0: Um, But she has very long, down to her waist, uh, red hair. She's famous for her green eyes. She's famous for her very petite frame. And in fact, magazines regularly list her actual height and her actual weight, which I'm not going to do because I can't corroborate that. (laughs) I don't think it's that relevant. But suffice to say, she's small. She's not unlike a Woody Whist heroine or her own heroines. She's got that moneyed look. So interestingly, I've seen her father described a couple of different ways. In an unauthorized, one of the a People magazine article that was released prior to the book is kind of like a preview for the sake of these writers. They described her father as a German beer heir for the Lowenbrow family. A later New York Times article from 2006 that actually interviewed Danielle described him as a minor player in (laughs) a family brewing business. And I think that's so interesting. Like that contrast there is really fascinating. Um, Her mother was the daughter of a Portuguese diplomat. Her parents separated when she was very young. She split her time between Europe and New York. And her first husband, when she was 18, was a millionaire French banker. And he's pretty much the only one of her husbands who doesn't talk about Danielle. How old was he if she was 18? He was 28. Mm. When they were married, uh, she wrote her first romance novel. Um, She took a three-month break. She worked at a public relations agency and she took a three-month break sabbatical and she wrote her first novel. It wasn't like a huge hit, but she continued writing. One of the things she wanted to work on was about conscientious objectors. So she started traveling to San Francisco while she was still married to her first husband and interviewing um, conscientious objectors in prison and it was there that she met her second husband. I think her second husband has a lot to do with the lawsuit. (laughs) I think it goes pretty unsaid. So one of the sources that I read was Danielle Steele wrote a memoir about her son's life after his passing. She does talk about this second husband and how it related. um, And she describes it as a brief mistake. They met, I think, in 1973. He told her he was in prison for armed robbery, which, which is true. He was also in prison for rape at that time. He said that she became fascinated with him immediately, got really excited, and started talking pretty fast. And I want to I read his actual quote. He said, she, one of Danielle Steele's friends described it. She said, she never met those kind of people. They seemed dashing and macho, unlike the gentleman she was around most of her life. It was a way of asserting her independence from her upbringing. And I think there's an undercurrent here of classism, because these two husbands that I'm going to talk about are not of the same class, socioeconomic class, as Danielle. And they did not make any money off of their relationships with Danielle. So... This guy meets Danielle Steele. He says in this unauthorized biography, which he made some money off of, that their first romantic tryst was like sexual experience was in the prison itself before they were married. When he's paroled in 1973, he moves in with Steele, who is then divorced from her husband and her daughter Beatrix. They have this passionate love affair, as he describes it. And then in 1974, he is convicted again of rape and robbery. Danielle stands by him. She says it's not true. Later on, when she writes her memoir, she does describe him as a rapist and does say it was a mistake. To stand by him? No, just to be with him. Okay. She's not that specific, you know? So he gets sent, um, he's sentenced to seven years for this crime uh, in Vacaville. Where is Vacaville? Vacaville. It's in San Francisco okay. area. Um, she paid for his legal defense or lent him money for it. She's at this point, she's not this incredibly, she's not independently wealthy at least, but she is living in you know San Francisco, but it's the 70s, so I don't know. But <laughs> when she is reflecting on her on her like co-living situation with him she says everything was mine my house my daughter my friends my job and i continued to expect him to conform and do all the adjusting our attempt to blend our very different lifestyles was hopelessly clumsy and painful for both of us
1: well that's very compassionate and reflective
0: and it's so true that's actually some really good advice like if you're gonna blend your life with someone just get a new apartment together (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like do the work of trying to find friends or a hobby together. Like that's it's incredibly compassionate.
0: Yeah. They continue to be married, um, while he's in prison, um, for about a year and then they get a divorce. But Um, She then meets this third husband who is a recovering heroin addict when he who also has a rap sheet. But he's very different, I think, from Zugelder, even just like reading these interviews. So about the time these two men are engaged in this um, lawsuit, the second husband is in prison for yet another rape and robbery. And he's actually been sentenced to 40 years, but I think he was due to be out. In the early 2000s, maybe. Anyways, so he's in prison. This other guy, at the time this article comes out, he's living in the what is described as the decrepit mission district by this article, which really speaks to how long ago 1994, 1993, 1992 was. She meets him. He's going to move. He's, he's working with a moving company, and he comes to her house for a consult, and that's how they meet. So here's the argument. In her memoir about her son, who is the child of this third husband, the recovering heroin addict, Danielle describes their time together as very distant. He was always leaving. Um, He was very inconsistent. He wasn't present at the birth of their son. He was very much a distant father and not interested in being a dad. And she says he he wasn't interested in connecting with her until after her son's death when he was 19. What in fact exists in public record is a very difficult custody battle. Danielle eventually argues to have supervised visits because she says, you know, he's always on heroin, and he does admit to having a couple of relapses over the first seven years of his son's life, Um, but he also, you know, worked in an outpatient facility for youth and things like that, so it's a very narrow narrative, I think, that she provides of what her third husband was like during their marriage, which, having never been divorced, but living my life as a petty human being, I... (laughs) I'm not going to fault her for. It's her own story, right? I'm just saying there's something very different actually happening. And I think the fact that she's editing in that way is telling.
1: Or that she has to edit for the custody battle itself, right? Like you have to present a narrative in family court so that you win.
0: Yeah. And very shortly after her divorce from this third, she also says she never wanted to marry him, but she was pregnant. And it was like her father's final wish for her to marry this guy and that she couldn't have gotten an abortion because she had a religious moral problem with herself getting an abortion, which is exactly how she frames it, a religious moral problem with myself getting an abortion, which I think is very much of the era her memoirs published in. Her divorce settlement with this guy is $50,000 and absolutely no custody of the child. And her second husband, who she marries pretty shortly afterwards, adopts. Wait, this would be number four. Fourth husband. You're right. Her fourth husband uh, adopts her son, who is now seven years old, and her second child. What is the son's name? His name is Nick. Nick knows his real father. He, he doesn't see him very often. Period. And when this article is published in People magazine, he's 14. So about seven years. Um, And his father is is relapsed. And it is noted in this article that let's talk about the money thing. (laughs) and is that what's noted in the article or yeah second husband rapist and robber currently in prison during this trial points out I'm, i'm gonna i'm gonna read the passage even though the couple enjoyed regular conjugal weekends god regret reading that in 1977 Steele asked for a divorce it was granted the following year but not before Steele, according to zugelder used him as grist for two novels that helped launch her brilliant career in Passion's Promise, the heroine, a socialite writer, falls in love with a poor ex-con. <laughs> oh, no. oh, Isabeau. Remember when you were like, how, what do you mean she's writing books about her real life? The hero of Now and Forever is accused of raping a woman he says consented to sex and is then imprisoned at Vacaville. Wow. Okay. And those, Isabeau, I think it's significant, are her first two really successful novels. I
1: mean, I think we could wax here for a little bit about like write what you know and like what becomes a bestseller and what years did these come out? So he's she asked for the divorce in 77. So these books come out in like 78, 79.
0: 1978. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think the thing is they were popular. She made a lot of money off of them. And they are very closely hewn to her real life experiences. Wrong
1: Side of the Tracks love stories are perennially popular, but I feel like they're actually kind
0: of cyclical. And she's the only one who is making money off of these books because they're published after her divorce from him. And she didn't have to pay alimony
1: at that point for this. Okay. Okay. And she just like, out of the compassionate give of her heart, she just like doesn't cut him a check.
0: Yeah. No, of course not. All right. okay. so then her second husband, who she divorces and gets grants no wait third, third husband. husband. I'm so sorry. I always forget about the millionaire French banker
1: the first, and the one that like was ascribed to
0: her own class. number three in 1979, after the publication of Steele's first fourth book, the money started really rolling in. Steele became more involved in society life, going to opera, parties, plays. Toth felt more and more like a hireling and grew resentful. They went to marriage counseling, which is very different than the marriage that Danielle Steele describes in her memoir. Um, she divorced him in 81, and he received a $50,000 settlement. And no custody. Lost all custody eventually. At, at the time of this article's publication, he's being interviewed in his apartment in the Mission District, and and he's told the reporter, like, yes, I am. I'm currently shooting up he says toth believes Steele had a more personal motive for severing him from his son i was an embarrassment to her he says here i was this middle class ex-con so she got rid of me and pretends never existed Steele's friend counters with she gave bill every chance once he proved he couldn't be a responsible father she ended his parental rights and she did it for the sake of the child I get it. I get both of those arguments. Now, the, the People magazine article and indeed the book authors don't really talk about any kind of money exchange between themselves and these two men who were married to Danielle Steele, for a cash exchange for information. It's largely considered unethical, but it's also not considered impossible because, you know, monetary compensation to me is a like justifiable reason to share these incredibly personal stories. But once again, as a petty human being, like I understand there are motivations that go deeper, right? And you don't have to have necessarily an end game in sight beside this person hurt me, used me. And now I would like to get a little bit of revenge by kind of breaking this. Because after her divorce from Toth, she marries this man named uh, Trana who is from a wealthy family and it's really interesting after her divorce from him she kind of comes out and says like he never actually did anything like people credit him with getting her the television movies and stuff but she's like people always generously described him as like a magnate or something but really he just married I think one of the like his first wife was uh, what's the what's the fox catcher family the, cl- the chemicals people DuPont I think he married like a DuPont heiress or something and then when they got divorced Steele called him up and she had this that's when she she buys the manor owned by the Spreckle, the from the Spreckles heiress. And like, that's when she starts, you know, having this new life once she becomes a successful author. She lives with this big family. She's gone on record saying things like you pointed out, like she's awake for 20 hours a day, and she only sleeps for four hours a day. For some reason, I thought she said, I write 20 hours a day. She she says, like, I, I do my jobs of being a mother and a writer. 20 hours a day and she said when you have nine kids you have to be that organized otherwise it's just appalachia woof woof she points out even though she's very wealthy that she has had real tragedy and i think that's true of course and she has this quote that i really enjoyed that says it seems steel once observed every time you reach a comfortable spot life kicks you in the ass and you have to grow or something (laughs) i love that or something yeah. Her first ever novel is called Go- Going Home. And she t- says that the theme of it is simple. Every woman falls in love with a bastard at least once in her life. And while you and I have read one Danielle Steele novel, I would not consider myself like a big Danielle Steele fan. But there is this artist n- named Patty Gone, And they created a chapbook called Love Life, which is a reflection on Danielle Steele specifically. And for those of you who don't know, I think this sounds – I trust Patty Gons' summary um, that Steele's books follow a common formula. Patty Gon says an older man seduces a younger woman mostly by being mean to her. The woman eventually tames the man in one way or another, and they end up together in the end. Though there may be other suitors in the story, in Steele's books, the real Prince Charming will always be the guy who decides to buy her name brand col- clothing and commit to starting a family. Based on the Titanic story we read, that's not wrong. That's not wrong. (laughs) Um, And I think, like I said, there's like a lot of class differential here. One of my favorite trends on TikTok is what's something that's trashy when poor people do it and classy when a rich person does it. And the way people talk about Danielle's marriages to this man who is a recovering drug addict and her marriage to this convicted rapist and bank robber is like her life has been as fascinating as a romance novel itself. And like the fact that she has nine children, everyone's like, can you believe it? She has nine children. I think it's clear that she benefited from having these two men of a particular social class within her life.
1: Monetarily, because of the books that she then became wildly successful for.
0: Exactly. And she also benefited from the fact that she was of a higher social class than them. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the case. (laughs) Danielle Steele has been super private about her life up until these early 90s. The only time you kind of saw her was like in the society pages of publications like the San Francisco Gate. I read so many pieces about her going out and stuff. And, you know, she said, as many celebrities do, a large part of it was wanting to protect her children from the press. And she finds out that there's going to be a biography published um, called The Many Lives of Danielle Steele by these two writers for People Magazine. The article that comes out in 1992 actually mentions that Nick is Toth's son and not Trina's son. So I I did some research. So Danielle makes the argument in her memoir that by virtue of being born in California Mm -hmm. and adopted in California, her child's adoption records are sealed. Period. So I did some research into this adoption record law in California. And it's actually quite easy for an adoptee parent. The parent who adopts the child to access these laws as well as like their attorney to unseal the records. And of course, all judges throughout California have like discretion here, right? If there's a good reason to release the records, right? Like maybe your adoptive parents have passed away and you want to know who your biological parents are. The judge makes the argument that because Danielle Steele is a celebrity, this book and this information about the fact that her son was adopted by Trina. Is actually arguably worth the public is is relevant to public interest. I you squinted a little, and I agree. <laughs> so Danielle's a lawyer makes the argument, and he says, "You know, this is a 15 year old kid we're talking about."
1: Right, like, how could he and his biological and adoptive records be of the public interest? He is not a public figure, and just because his mother is, like,
0: it's weird. I don't know. I'm, like, not into judges lately. (laughs) So this is like classic American freedom of press stuff. If we start restricting one thing and if we start denying information to be released publicly, especially something of a government record like this adoption paper then it's a slippery slope. I hate that argument. I hate that argument because it just (laughs) assumes
1: that like Americans will never be able to deal with nuance where it's just like, I don't like that that's written into our laws. Listen, I want to protect freedom of the press as much as the next person. But like, I don't think the case of like, if we restrict this adoption record to these like vulture investigators who want to sell a salacious book published by People Magazine, where will it end? We will never have FOIA requests. It's like, (laughs) you will still have
0: your sunshine laws, guy. That's why they're there. Why are you exploiting this fucking kid? But what's really interesting is that the US actually has some of the most lax laws around privacy rights as they relate to the children of celebrities. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me either, really. Okay, so the central mover of this book about Danielle Steele is that her life is like one of her romance novels so i think what they're trying to do is they need to show that she had a child with toth in order to tell the story of her custody battle with toth but why because it's interesting i mean
1: i don't know custody battles seem really du jour in 1992 so
0: exactly exactly like they are very much of the moment right The idea that everybody's getting divorced matters, and I think a custody battle is interesting. I mean, but there are two divorces before we even get to this
1: one. But they didn't have custody battles. Right, but they were divorced. Like, she was married to a person currently incarcerated. Like, that to me is the more, like, I
0: just, I don't know. This, like... Well, that is included in the book as well. Of course. It's not like they're, like, editing out one thing. Like, I think they're trying to get as much juice into the fruit as possible, right? Right. Him losing custody of his child, I think, is related... Toth's son being adopted by Trayna is related to his drug his fight against his drug addiction, right? It's related to that. Danielle Steele's ability to extract his son, his par- his parental rights from him has to do with that. That's the thing about life. And if we're talking about like a biography or a memoir, the experience of that child being adopted doesn't only belong to his adopted father it doesn't only belong to him it doesn't only belong to his mother it doesn't only belong to his father it belongs to all of those people plus the legal system in california And the ability to seal or unseal these records is going to have, like, set a precedent. The judge who made this ruling is actually a really big deal judge in San Francisco. Um, A guy named Pollock. he still serves if you're in San Francisco. And he, like, his first job was, like, a staffer. He was a staffer on the Warren Commission and things like that when he was a youngster. And so her act and I also want to say like her actual like this um, sealing of the adoption record is actually a means to an end to keep these writers from writing the book, period. While I'm like, keep the adoption record sealed. The child was adopted when he was seven. Dan, he's now 15. Mm-hmm. Steele argues that the reason they want the only reason she fought this is that he didn't want his siblings to know that he was adopted.
1: The siblings that were born after him. Yes. Because Beatrix would know.
0: Yeah. It's putting a lot of faith in your older sister to not tell people stuff. (laughs) But he didn't want his younger siblings to know. But they pointed out that she had gone through a a rather extreme measure with one of these adoption cases and having Toth actually removed from his birth certificate. Wow, that is extreme. Yeah. And so in her novel, she says, it wasn't that big of a deal to us. It only mattered to Nick, her son, that this adoption record was sealed. But the framing of the lawsuit and the fact that she went to that extent prior says, this is, I I think something else is going on.
1: Oh, certainly. And a 15-year-old being that afraid of his younger siblings, like... Not of his younger siblings somehow thinking differently of him. Like a 15 year old doesn't come to that fear on their own, mm-hmm. right? Like if there's enough unconditional love in that house, a kid doesn't. All of my siblings are half siblings, but the thing that my parents and my older siblings always told me is like, we're half siblings, but we whole love each other. It didn't like I was raised with all of my siblings, my parents had custody. And so, like, yeah, that argument that it's that important to Nick, <laughs> if you feel loved and safe, like that information mm-hmm. is just more information. Yeah. Yeah. That argument for me doesn't hold water because like he's only 15.
0: So there you go. Like at first you're like, oh, like of course they should keep it sealed, right? I think they should keep it sealed because like I don't think this doesn't,
1: this is a legal matter as you say. It's a family matter as you say. I think you said it really eloquently when you said that it's not just Nick's story. It's not just Danielle Steele's story. It's not just her ex-husband's story. It's not her husband's, not just, not just, not just. But none of those people constitute the public. That's where I would draw this line.
0: Beep, beep. Because what a perfect segue. Because Danielle Steele is a celebrity. She describes herself as a celebrity. She is the (laughs) best-selling living author. She is incredibly wealthy. She wears couture. And we know she wears couture because she's photographed regularly. So now we've got to talk about a good Like, what is a good? And that was one of the issues with this court case. So this book, this unauthorized autobiography. A book is a form of speech. No one would argue that, right? Like, and you have freedom of speech. The idea that you would somehow stop this book from being published because it contains this information from a legally unsealed adoption record, that's sticky. The other thing about a book is that it's also a good Uh. and this particular good no books are goods like you sell them oh you sell them to make money off of them
1: i'm sorry when you were saying a good i thought you were talking about like a social good or like a public good i'm like
0: oh no 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 like a like a product like something you can sell a goods (laughs) value comes from like a bunch of like intangible stuff associated with it which brings us to celebrity Danielle Steele's celebrity, no one would give a rat's ass about this book, about this lawsuit, if she wasn't a celebrity. This was a very well-selling biography when it came out. Her memoir follow-up to it also did well. So I, I don't think we can argue that she's not a celebrity. And when you're a celebrity, parts of who you are are likewise a good. Your likeness and your personality are things that you can sell in order to communicate something. So on that page of images, you saw an advertisement for Danielle Steele's fragrance by Elizabeth Arden. Danielle Steele, I think it could be argued. I'm not saying that I'm arguing this. I'm just saying I could see this argument. Because two of her early successes are so clearly part of her shared experience with this ex-husband, and she's the only one who profits off of it. It seems like a little unfair (laughs) for her to kind of Bogart her celebrity, her cachet, her goods from other people who have indeed suffered for being a part of her life. I mean, I can see that
1: argument. But, you know, again, where I draw the line is like, we have a minor here in Nick. Yes, this stuff will furnish out more chapters in this book and like, paint a different picture of a very public figure. Okay. But I think her first two husbands and her, like, the current one that she's married to at the time of this lawsuit could have done that just fine. Like, it seems like, I understand the argument where it's like, she doesn't belong just to herself. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And she has like, indeed done wrong to the second two husbands. Like, I, yes, on board with that argument. But we have a minor who feels conditionally loved
0: not a matter of the public record
1: not a matter of the public record but like my armchair supposition and the idea that like all of the adults in the room don't like it seems to me that daniel Steele is more concerned with daniel Steele's privacy than her son's privacy she's just using him as the avatar for that and these reporters don't care about this child And like all of that really, really sucks. And it sucks that then the law steps in and is like, ooh, slippery slope, we got to release this rather than like looking as a space that could have protected this child. Like this seems to me like a failure of a lot of adults.
0: Here's the other thing though, right? We're like, we're acting like the unsealing of this adoption record suddenly made it public that this child was adopted at the age of seven. And not the fact that Danielle Steele publicly married Trina immediately after a divorce from her previous husband with a seven-year-old child. It wasn't like a secret wedding. She wore this like fur-trimmed Oscar de la Renta gown with a tiara. People knew, even without unsealing this adoption record, Right, there was record using basic critical thinking, the ability to discern that Nick wasn't Trina's biological child. Sure, which suggests to me that there's something else
1: in the adoption records, like that there's, I don't know, something about what, like, the conditions of Trina adopting this child. And, like, whatever that is, like... I don't know.
0: I think you I think you were right earlier when you said it seems like sealing the adoption record is actually or, or disputing the unsealing of the adoption record seemed like the only reasonable way to stop the publication of this unauthorized biography.
1: I didn't say that. You said that. I think this bi- biography could have been published without this information and it would have been just as salacious and like counterfactual.
0: No, I mean, like, Danielle Steele, like, her first goal was to stop the publication of this biography. Yeah. The only reasonable path she had for that is that this includes the information that is of a sealed, part of a sealed record that my son is adopted by his father.
1: I think there are likely other avenues. Like, the the thing that's tripping me up here is that it seems to me that no one's really thinking of Nick.
0: Of course not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and that sucks. But I think what maybe the judge is saying whenever the judge is like, no, I'm going to let this stand is like, you are also using your child, and that's not going to fly. Especially when you consider the fact that, like I said earlier, like, even if the judge had been like, this adoption record is going to remain sealed, the reporters could have pointed out all sorts of other timelines, right? And so that makes it like not a good legal argument. For either
1: of them, really, because, like, why do they need this adoption record if they can go back through, like, the, you know, in-style section of the San Francisco Gate or Chronicle and, like, see her getting married to this guy? And ostensibly, Nick would have been there. Yeah. And also his birth certificate. Like, the fact that she tried to, like, (laughs) delete the person on it, it's like, that's crazy. But also... Well, she did. She successfully did. That's insane. But also they would have seen the birth certificate and like, you know, they would have been able to trace back when she met trainer And like, there are a thousand other ways to get this information out. I don't think it had to be the adoption records. And so the fact that like, everyone's like, you know, Daniel Steele's trying to block it for herself. Okay. The reporters are trying to get it for themselves. Okay. And this judge is like slippery
0: slope of freedom of the press. I'm like, I don't know, man. The judge didn't say slippery slope freedom of the press. The lawyers for the writers of the biography said that right and he was swayed by that he's like yep yes he said she's a celebrity so well well that brings us okay so celebrity privacy is legally very different than your privacy and my privacy obviously well it used to be in the united states or just globally globally it's considered controlled publicity Basically, the idea of controlled publicity is that either you can make money off of use of your own quote unquote private data or other people like paparazzi can extract that private data from you by like taking photos of you when you're not expecting it, when you're in private moments and then selling those. And here is where I fell down a rabbit hole. Commercial use of private data. That used to just be a celebrity thing. (laughs) (laughs) And now all of our data is has commercial use. Private industries are selling our personal data to without our with our like suggested consent, which is an interesting argument. Yeah. This reminds me of when everyone freaked out about the NSA surveilling us without telling us. Right. But now we have this thing like the meta, literally called the metaverse, right? Like we have like our data is being sold by every website we touch. We used to have this deep fear of like the government surveillance state. And the way our private data can get interpreted is not unlike what happened with Danielle Steele in 1992 and 1993, Right. People can take this information that is available about you and make so- all sorts of extrapolations about it. I recently listened to um, You're Wrong About about people who are convicted for child pornography. And they don't make, like, arguments, but they, they tell the story of this guy who downloaded a video that was described as teen, which could mean 18. It could mean 19, which are all legal ages of consent just so happened that the, one of the actors in this film was um, under the age of 18. Because that data is on his computer, it was tracked and he was arrested. And while he says, like, you know, it wasn't the most shining moment of his life, it, he did not realize he was committing a crime. But nevertheless, he still has to like publicly disclose that he's a sex offender. He can't receive promotions because he's not allowed to supervise anyone under the age of 18 now. Um, and his life is irrevocably changed. Oftentimes when we think about true crime, we try to focus on stories that are so greatly distanced from us. But I think the law touches all of us in these really direct ways. And something like what happened to Danielle Steele, and I am of the mind that, like, they could have gone, you know, if they wanted to be assholes and they wanted to insist on telling, on publicly stating that this 15-year-old was adopted, right, they could have gone a lot of different ways. And whatever the judge decided, the judge decided based on, you know, their interpretation of the law. And the fact that, like, your life, not unlike, like, Danielle Steele's is also open to interpretation by these third parties in the legal system is fascinating to me. But I think it really speaks to the fact that, like, nothing is just one thing. Like, the fact that her son was adopted was also a means to an end to block, you know, reporting on what she described as a youthful mistake, which was marrying a rapist and then paying for his defense even if it law, even if she lost and then writing a book about a man a romance novel about a man who was falsely accused of rape when he actually just had consensual sex with a woman right making him a romantic hero yeah i think that's all salacious enough
1: you know like they didn't need what was happening with the recovering father of nick there was plenty there was plenty here
0: Part of me thinks that he wanted his story told, though, the father of Nick.
1: I think so. I think that's like really clear, especially if you've gone through like a really nasty custody battle and that you've only gotten $50,000 and you've literally been erased from your son's birth certificate.
0: Yeah. You know, having that adoption record unsealed shows that this guy isn't just blowing smoke and is the only way because he was removed from the birth certificate, which is public record. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Again, that just doesn't seem to, like, take into the account of, like, how this is going to affect a minor.
0: Yeah, so I do want to acknowledge, so the memoir Danielle Steele wrote after the unauthorized biography was published, it was quite a few years later, um, her son Nick Trina, he was a punk musician in San Francisco. Um, he was, she also writes in her memoir um, that he, dealt with manic depressive disorders from a young age. And, and one of her frustrations is that she never felt, because he was so young when he started exhibiting symptoms, she felt like she could have gotten him medical intervention, but no one wanted to do that for a child at the time. And he did eventually take his own life when he was 19. A lot, of, the reason I got into this story was I heard this like crackerjack headline that Danielle Steele married a rapist, had a child with that rapist, sealed the adoption record that her wealthy husband then adopted the child, and then when that was then revealed to Nick, when the adoption record was unsealed, and that's what led to his suicide. That is not what happened. That is not even a claim that Danielle Steele remotely makes, and kind of says, like, the family moved on, because as we pointed out, like, there was a lot of, there was a lot of public record already and nick was aware knew his real father his biological father i should say had a relationship with him although not at the from the age of 7 forward um he did stay in touch with his his father's uh, parents toth's parents were still a part of his life and everything so that's a that's a real misrepresentation but it is there was just one of those crazy stories and i was like what is this and then i you know started researching it and found out so after he um died Danielle started the Nick Trina Foundation, which is a mental health advocacy program for young people. Um, and she raises a lot of money. She has an annual ball called the Star Ball. Uh, and it is very star-studded um, to raise money for the Nick Trina Foundation. And she remains a doyenne, a, a lioness in her field for romance. And in spite of, and she says she now has a relationship with Toth. Um, and that they they bonded a lot over the loss of their son. Good. He's actually stayed clean. I think the most recent report I've heard from Danielle is that he's still doing well, um, and that they're still friends. Um, she eventually divorced Trina, and that was also messy. <laughs> and then she married a venture capitalist. Uh, they divorced. That was less messy. It was fascinating to me starting with that incorrect headline about this case and then finding all of the nuance around it and it's one of those things that just gets more vaporous the more you learn about it because part of me I'm like leave the adoption records sealed and then I'm like well it was like the only way for them to like fact check what they had heard from Toth right is to unseal these adoption records and the reason that's okay is because Danielle Steele is a celebrity and she is able to make money off of her personality and her likeness. So her personality and her likeness are public fodder. Like I understand the legal argument. And I also understand like, couldn't they have like left out the whole, they could have left out the whole third husband part of it. But then that's also like, only partially telling a truth. And I think back in 1993, 1994, being truthful was important. (laughs) And tabloids weren't what they are today. And People Magazine, well, I think People Magazine still is probably pretty well respected you still read it at airports and dentist's office and dentist's office
1: shout out to dr zoom
0: <laughs> as much and it reminds me of like foucault and it reminds me of althusser that as much as we think of ourselves as these like souls so much of us is just information that's not only contained by other people but also by legal entities
1: I think that like going back to your like NSA point where it's like I think about what it would have been like to be Edward Snowden sometimes where you like discover this huge secret and it's you you're like rightfully horrified and then you disclose it and there's like a public outcry but I think it would be too much to call it a firestorm right none of our laws changed none of that none of our privacy laws got better in fact in many ways no The capture of our data only accelerated since Snowden whistle blew about what was happening. Exactly. And, like, how disappointing for a person like that to, like, have risked everything to, like, have to leave a country that you, like, you know, had lived in your whole life to have such a little public outcry to have such a little so little made of it because I think you're right like one of the things that this really hammers home is like 1992 in some ways and 93 feel like a really foreign shore oh pre-social media pre-world wide web but like people have always been really hungry for data, and ways to tell a story. And I think like the fact that there's always been a market of the the unauthorized biographies, Mm. like there's always been a market there, like there currently is a market for (laughs) unauthorized biographies, like there was one about like, Harry and Meghan just a few years ago. And so this is an incredibly pertinent story. And I think like, in some ways, it feels both foreign and familiar in the ways of like, this feels like a time fisher, almost like A warning shot across the bow.
0: A hundred percent. That's how it felt. I looked up this Columbia Law Review article about the FTC and how it's protecting consumer privacy. And the article was just like, it's not. And we shouldn't be surprised. And (laughs) the FTC – and they said it's because FTC comes from a model of deception – and they're like but deception is just like was it disclosed and it is in a way disclosed that your data is getting collected and then sold but not really not in like a meaningful way and that was the argument of this article is that there should be like a higher bar right that yeah i think that's right this feels like a warning shot and if and it's if i if i tuck it in around it's like the, the corners of its era I can comfortably sit on both sides of the argument and be like, oh, it was wrong of them to release that record, unsteal that record, right? Like, celebrity, even though Danielle Steele's name is on the record, doesn't eliminate the fact that people who aren't selling their identity are also included on that record, right? And then the other side of it being like, well, it's people, you know, she herself put her personality out there, right? She wrote those two books that sound eerily similar to her actual romance <laughs> with this other figure, right? She has a lot of capital around her appearance and her success. And so to be critical and to poke at that and to ask questions about it is worthwhile. There are, there are slopes and some of them are slippery, but it's hard to know which slope is slippery until you're climbing it, right? So if I tuck it in on the corners of its ear, I'm like, wow, I guess two things can be true at the same time. But when I look at my, like, current condition, when I look at what's happened since then, the corners come untucked.
1: <laughs> and, like, this is still, I think, the weaponization of sealing legal documents, especially in celebrity culture. Like, this immediately brought up for me, like, the uh, very messy and nasty custody battle between Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie.
0: I didn't know they had a nasty custody battle.
1: Oh, yeah, it's, like, ongoing, and, like, he's trying to seal certain records, and she's trying to unseal them for the public because she thinks that there'll be a public outcry that will help her in the custody battle. Like, there's some really ugly stuff going on.
0: Those kids are old! You want custody for, like, three years?
1: (laughs) Only three of them. Not even. I don't know, because, wait, the two oldest are over 18, but the other ones aren't. They're teens now.
0: They're all in their teens.
1: They're all in their teens, but this has been going on for years.
0: I don't I don't know anything about the Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt custody battle.
1: It's because you don't read People magazine at the dentist's office.
0: And it's because I only read People magazine articles that are as old as I am. Um apparently. But do you have any other thoughts around this case? I think, like, the fact that this case exists in the culture, the fact that that unauthorized biography exists to speak to romance novels indicates, like, the prevalence of romance novels. The fact that Danielle Steele is in fourth place to Barbara Cartland, who is in third place to Agatha Christie, and everybody's beneath William Shakespeare as, like, the best-selling authors of all time. I mean... I think it's really great that four that three women are in the top
1: 5. That's information that makes me happy inside. In terms of thoughts about this case, like one thing that it does when you say that like they sold this unauthorized biography by saying like Daniel Steele's life is as exciting as a romance novel. Yeah. That salaciousness, that sort of almost an undertone of superiority. Yeah. I think is part of the perceived real or not real feeling that like romance is salacious and like beneath real literature. And like this case seems to me to be a part of that bedrock.
0: Yeah. And I mean, like no one wrote like people wrote unauthorized biographies of Hemingway, I'm sure. But like who gave a fuck if his kid was adopted, you know, like it's a very different It's very different when you're telling a story about a woman, first of all, and then secondly about a romance novelist. Like your position as a public figure, although very powerful, right, is also ostracized and undermined whenever your experience enters the general zeitgeist.
1: Right. I think undermined
0: is exactly right.
1: Like and not only does this like undermine – Daniel Steele is a serious writer, which she clearly is. It also seems to, like, make the genre itself silly or worse salacious. And that's just, like, that sucks. And I think, like, that just adds to this, like, public perception of, like, romance being a lesser.
0: Well, and not to, like, send us down another rabbit hole, but just a thought I want to, like, point out. I think romance novelists especially make the defense that, like, I'm not writing about a fantasy life. No one would say that you know, Dan Brown is writing about a fantasy life. I'm not writing about my own life either. Like I'm not over identifying with my heroines. They are no more like me than any other character in any other book would be similar to its author. Like why do you make that assumption? But then there are some really big set pieces. <laughs> it's like there are personal think pieces written by romance authors. There is the fact of Danielle Steele's second husband husband being like, you tell me where she got the idea, right? That like undermine that argument all the time. And I think you and I are always battling with this when we record this show of like not putting the author in the text. But like there are times when the author is present, you know, and it feels undeniable. and it, And it is possible. It is possible to do, you know, to work around it you know, and then by that same token, like if you're profiting off of selling your personal story, why can't the other people involved also tell their side freely?
1: Yeah, I think Dan Brown is actually a pretty good corollary where it's like, that's just a Mary Sue.
0: Oh my god, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Stieg a 100%. Right? But like,
1: those books are never like, by, like, the literati, whatever the fuck that means, <laughs> like, are never accused in the same way, and they're, like, never, like, yeah. even thumbed their nose at in the same way that romance is. And so it's like, no, obviously, like, I would never suggest that any romance author's or anybody listening to this podcast should like lean into the idea that like, no, of course I write about myself. Like, that's where like all my best ideas, like, don't do that. I don't think that's safe for you. Um, But also, Dan Brown's writing about his fucking self,
0: okay? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. About his fantasy self. Yeah, 100%. Well, he's not doing the writing anymore, period. But sure. (laughs) But before that, you know what I mean? And so it's just like that
1: that kind of hypocrisy, I think, is really, really hard to like live with and swallow. Which I also think, like, that's why this story feels difficult and hard. And I think it just constantly reminds me that like romance is—it's it, so enmeshed in our culture in such a specific way. And I think that's actually one of the things that's so fascinating about it. And also one of the reasons why people don't study it because it's like well if it If it undergirds current culture and has since, you know, 1977, then like, what is there really to say about it? It's like popcorn. It's like, well, popcorn has a fascinating...
0: There's a lot to say about popcorn.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And it has a fascinating history that like shouldn't be discounted.
0: The fact that it is so enmeshed just means there's more information around it. And I think the fact that you can't talk about it says that you actually can't find distance or be self-critical enough. As it, Not as self-critical as in, like, my nail beds are terrible, but self-critical as in, like, why do I do this? Why do I feel this? Why do I think this? Enough to, like, interrogate something in popular culture. I think it's a lot harder to talk about something like a romance novel than it is to talk about someone trying to be Jonathan Franzen. You know? <laughs> like, something like that. hmm Okay. Any other parting thoughts?
1: No, thank you for taking me on this wild ride. I'm a little bit sad that this one didn't have Colin Powell in it, but R.I.P.
0: <laughs> do you want, okay, I, I'm going to give you something to hang your hat on here. So as I mentioned, Danielle Steele throws a party for – not a party, but a, a gala, a fundraiser. Pardon me, I'm a little – I'm a little Pavo, for the Nick Trina Foundation. Um, And I, she started the Nick Trina Foundation, I want to point this out, at a time when like mental health was not at the forefront of any conversation, let alone a young person's mental health. She never once in her memoir, as weird as it is, as weird as some of the stuff she says is, she never like thinks about uh, suicide in a way that's like a simple formula. And I think that's really important. She takes it, she treats it with the complexity and individualism that it deserves. She's a fascinating character, but she... um, I was reading one of the Society articles about the star, Ball, I believe in 2004. Awards were presented to Barry Bonds, Tipper Gore, and Sidney Poitier. Oh! Unable to attend because of a prior commitment with the United Nations for their work with children's issues and mental health organizations. Sharon Osborne then introduced Steele, whom she'd met during her battle with colon counts cancer. Out of the blue, Steele had sent her a letter of support. Osborne, earrings in hand as she took the podium, joked, "'My husband's going to kill me,' Ozzy Osborne. Uh, "'My earrings keep popping off, and they're on loan.' When Danielle came up on stage, dazzling in ro- rochus couture, sparkling in major carrot edge, she jibed back, "'Well, I don't have a husband,' And the earrings are mine.
1: <laughs> true blue original.
0: So there, you got your celebrity. <laughs> you got your name drops. That was good. Uh, well, thank you guys for joining. And, I, and I'd really like to know what you guys think about this case, what you think about Danielle Steele. I know there are some true blue writer dies out there. And we'll list our sources uh, on the website. Thank you all so much for listening. And uh, loosen your woes, but never your nesses. <laughs> mmm. <Mwah. laughs> guacamole, everyone! Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance.
1: Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan.
0: And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at M Reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H M-A-D-N.
1: womancepodcast.com
0: If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time!